If you would, uh, I encourage you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible in the Old Testament. We have been walking through this book off and on for the last year, and we are now in Exodus 23, verses uh, 10, um, actually, basically 10 through, we're actually going to just going to go through 19 today. Uh, there's a principle in the world, maybe the universe, maybe built into the creation that God has made, and it is this. What we do shapes who we are. What we do shapes who we are. This is true both literally, it's true figuratively. Um, so, for example, uh, in the area of diet and exercise, if you, you know, do bicep curls like every day of your life, eventually you're going to get some definition. It just happens. Uh, similarly, if you do no exercise and try to put in five calories, 5,000 calories a day, that will also shape you as a person. Uh, but so do non-physical aspects. Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, Adolf Hitler's training of Nazi youth uh, pre up to and uh, preceding the World War II. Uh, in 1933, Adolf Hitler formed an indoctrination program for German boys. And by 1935, 60% of German boys were a part of this Nazi youth. Boys 14 to 18 years of age, they engaged in weapons training, physical fitness, an education program that would hammer into them the greatness of Germany, the danger of the Jews, and a call to fight. One historian summarized the experience with, quote, the songs they sang were Nazi songs, and the books they read were Nazi books, unquote. What we do shapes who we are. Now, this principle is built into the commands that we're going to see now in chapter 23 of the book of Exodus. Uh, if you remember what we have seen in the book of Exodus, we saw God miraculously deliver these enslaved people out of the grips of Egypt, of which they'd been there for 400 years. They brought the people through the Red Sea, brought them to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenantal relationship. Covenantal is somewhat of an Old Testament word or ancient word, but we see them at weddings, where two parties become one. And that's what happens in Exodus 19. God makes the Israelite people his people, and they become one. And then beginning in Exodus 20 and following, you have these commands that are for God's formed family. This is who you are to be. This is the kind of life you are to live. These are the principles that shape the family of God. Uh, and then it gets really specific. It, you know, it starts with the Ten Commandments, which are these broad moral laws. Then it gets into specific kind of civil laws and how it plays out. But we've seen some things over the last several weeks, for instance, that God's people should pursue moral purity and just mercy. God's people should be committed to neighbor love. They should care about honoring property. They should create, want to create equal justice under the law. Now, these are lofty goals, easy to forget, harder to live out. And so there's this question after you've kind of seen the high standard to which God's people are supposed to be marked, how? How would such a person be like this? How should we be like this? And today we're going to begin to see that God actually put festivals and practices into people's lives 
so that it would shape them to begin to live out the kind of principles and laws that God wanted for his people. In effect, God is saying to neglect these practices will result in forgetting who you are, and more importantly, whose you are. You are God's people, a part of God's story, set apart for God's purposes, but it's easy to forget. And so here in, in, under the Old Covenant, there were these rhythms of, uh, rhythms of worship, rituals of remembrance, festivals to never forget you are part of God's family. And these end up being God's gifts of grace to shape us to live lives of grace. So I want, to listen, I want you to listen to the entire passage, uh, Exodus 23, 10 through 19, and then we'll come back and look at it under two major headings. Verse 10, God is speaking through Moses to his people. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Twelve. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Verse 14, three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops and sow in your field. Consecrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year all men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God and do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is God's word. All right, I want to look at this under two broad headings. Heading number one, verses 10 through 12 are about this. God is saying he is a Sabbath God who has now created a Sabbath people who should be marked by Sabbath mercy. God is a Sabbath God who now has a Sabbath people who should now be marked by Sabbath mercy. Now the term Sabbath or Shabbat, it relates to the seventh day in Hebrew, but it also relates to the idea of ceasing from labor, from work, from to-do lists. The Sabbath day requires that we cease from normal activities, we quiet our body and soul, and we consecrate it as a day to worship, remember, and honor the Lord. God's people were to be a Sabbath people. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the number seven was the number for perfection or completion. Like, it, it, maybe in our parlance today, we'll say, you know, this is a perfect ten. In Jewish culture, it's a perfect seven. It's complete. It, it's full. And so what you're seeing in verses 10 through 12 is uh, in God's community, 
The seventh year and the seventh day were important moments in time. The seventh year and the seventh day shouldn't be like any other year or any other day. The seventh day was a holy day. The seventh year was a holy year. So we begin here uh, this idea of six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest your crops. I'm in verse 10. But during that seventh year, you're supposed to let the land lie unplowed and unused. Notice the key thing, though. Why? So that the poor among your people may get food from it. Even the animals get something to eat. Seven years, or six years, you work hard. You plant, you harvest, you plant, you harvest, whether it's olives, grapes, barley. But in that seventh year, that harvest work, that plant work, you step aside and you don't do it. And because how plants work, some fruit will still come. And that fruit and the fruit of that, that labor that God has labored to bring, it's to make sure the poor eat and the animals get rest. God cares about human beings and even beasts. God cares about eco- ecosystems, environments, and animals. The seventh year is for the vulnerable. God is a Sabbath God. He creates a Sabbath people, and they should extend Sabbath mercy on the seventh year. Verse 12, it talks more about uh, the Sabbath day. So six days you labor hard, sun up, sun down kind of labor. But on the seventh day, you are supposed to not work. But again, notice what it says in the second half of verse 12. Why? so that your ox and donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Again, God is showing concern for vulnerable animals that they're not overworked and for vulnerable people that could be at at risk for overwork. Think about it this way. In Israel, the promised land that the people are on their way to, uh, native Israelites are going to hold all the power. They were the majority culture with the best pieces of land and the greatest opportunities. Slaves and foreigners were the minority culture and as such had less power and less opportunity. If the majority culture wanted the slaves to work seven days a week, you bet they could have made that happen. If some Jewish man wanted to eat a Big Mac on the seventh day, he could find some foreigner or slave to make his sandwich. But God says not so among God's people. Those who are more vulnerable, susceptible, who could be forced to work, should be released as well. You rest and worship your God. You rest and release the vulnerable. We have a Sabbath God who has created a Sabbath people who are then to extend Sabbath mercy. Um, One of the references throughout the Old Testament is that the Sabbath, the honoring of this seventh day, was supposed to be a sign for God's people. This, this, This marks us. We're different because we do something different one day out of seven. Under the Old Covenant, one year out of seven. We do things differently. Why? Because we're gods. We're not controlled by profit. We're not controlled by uh, getting ahead. We're, we're, We're led and controlled by God. If you turn back in Exodus 20, uh, the, 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 the third commandment is about, excuse me, the fourth commandment is about the Sabbath day. 
Exodus 20, verse 8. Listen to how the commandment first was heard. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And then in verse 11, it's rooted in the theology of creation. This is a creation principle. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he, he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now what's interesting is when the Ten Commandments are repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there, and that's the fifth book in the Bible, it speaks again about the keeping of the Sabbath day, but it doesn't base it on a theology of creation. It actually bases on a theology of redemption or freedom from slavery. In verse 12, it talks about observing the Sabbath day, Deuteronomy 5.12. You observe it, keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Verse 13, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. But notice verse 15, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Our God is a Sabbath God in that God grants rests at creation, our God is a Sabbath God in that he released people from the bondage of slavery. Under the old covenant, we're remembering the bondage of slavery under the Egyptians. In the new covenant, we have a God who has saved us from the slavery of sin. Therefore, rest. Marvel in God's rest. We are a Sabbath people because we worship a Sabbath God, and then therefore we should extend Sabbath mercies. How might this apply to 21st century Americans or 21st century Christians if you do walk with Jesus? For starters, for starters, most importantly, the Old Testament principle, you cannot work for your salvation. For it is by grace that you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. In Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about the Sabbath day is fulfilled in what Christ has accomplished to give rest for his people. We need Christ for real rest, real liberation, real redemption. Remember what it said in Deuteronomy 5? God brought you out of Egypt with his outstretched arm. Not your arm. You didn't do it. You didn't participate in it. So as 21st century people, we need to remember that salvation is based on grace alone. But once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, he's your Lord, he's your Savior, he's given you rest for your soul, rest for the weary. What are some Sabbath principles for people who don't live under the old covenant, but we live under the new? What are, what are some principles? I think for starters, there needs to be a gut check on our consumerism. the need for more, the need to buy more, the need to have more money, the need to get more things done. 
and, and crossed off our to-do list. Tim Keller writes, to practice Sabbath is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running, who provides for your family, not even the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. Workaholism and consumerism are ways in which we dishonor the fact that we have a Sabbath God, that he provides rest, that he provides do we need, and then think about how that then plays out too as it relates to the vulnerable. Do we need to go out to eat seven days a week? Do we need to be able to buy any and all products seven days a week? Does every company need a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week phone number so that I can call them when my gadget and gizmo isn't working? Much of the exploitation of the vulnerable workers today is driven by the demand for my comfortable majority culture lifestyle. You keep working so I don't have to. Now, some of you hear about this seventh year of rest and think that would be awesome, right? Doesn't this sound like you work six years and then you get like seven years to do nothing? Uh, first of all, that's not what it was saying. It's saying that only the land lies fallow. Only the land gets the rest. So it means you're still working six really hard years with the land. Well, in that seventh year, your animals will still need to be fed. Your homes will have to be maintained. There will be other things going on in your life. It's not a year off, per se. It's one year out of seven where you choose to be extremely unselfish and demanding. Do you catch that? It's one year out of seven. You're just extremely unselfish. You're letting go. You're letting animals and strangers live off the hard work you have done the six years prior. Now, for the Christian today, it might be that maybe you dedicate a significant portion of your interests and savings to those in need. Maybe you invest one-seventh of your income into poverty alleviation efforts. Maybe you set aside time each week or each month to teach the next generation job training skills. Maybe you set aside, set aside time each year to teach an eight-week or 12-week GED uh, uh, for people to get their GED. Um, maybe you teach a budgeting class for those who haven't been taught budgeting at a place like Bridgehaven. Or you may help with youth at the new Kingdom Community Center that's coming up in Cedar Rapids. Right? There's this dedication of wealth. There's this dedication of time to make sure that the vulnerable will know this Sabbath God through the Sabbath people. Scholar Derek Tidball writes, God has set them free from unremitting drudgery. The weekly Sabbath would serve to remind them regularly that they had experienced his saving justice in their own lives and to prompt them regularly to treat others with similar mercy and justice. Like I said, we've looked at some of these earlier commands in chapters 21, 22, and 23, the high call to love neighbor and to be marked by justice and mercy. One way that God's going to shape us to be these types of people is the honoring of the Lord's day. And on this day, we remember that God has saved us, he has created us, he has redeemed us. And then we spend the rest of the week living out of who we are, living out whose we are. We are to be Sabbath people, extending Sabbath mercy because we know the Sabbath God. Verse 13, 
There's kind of a transition verse back in 23. It says, Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of the other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. It's important to remember that God's laws are ultimately about worship and honor. We keep what God has said so that his name is honored. It's interesting when it talks about keeping the Sabbath in Isaiah 58, it warns, don't do what you would want on the Sabbath. It's not a day off. It's not a vacation day. It's a day unto the Lord. Why? So that he gets the honor. We don't want any false god to get praise or honor. We don't want greed, capitalism, or a can-do attitude to get glory. We want our Lord and Savior Jesus to receive honor. Verse 13 falls between these the Sabbaths and then keeping festivals. Remember, the rhythms and rituals of our lives will shape who we are, and who we are brings honor and glory to God, or it does not. Who we are brings good to others, or it does not. So let's move from Sabbaths to festivals. The Sabbaths speak about this Sabbath God, this God who grants rest and redemption, release. But the festivals, all three of these festivals, they speak to our saving God, the God who saves, and the God that we need to remember that he saves. Uh, In these verses, God's going to outline three major festivals for ancient Israel. Now, these are time-bound, covenant-bound, and land-bound festivals. So what do I mean by that? (laughs) I mean that as long as the Old Covenant was in place, as long as the Jewish people had the land, as long as there was a temple in the city of Jerusalem, these festivals were to be kept. None of these conditions are in play anymore. The practice of them is no longer required. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. He inaugurated the New Covenant. Jesus has pronounced a judgment on Jerusalem. He did in his ministry. Curse came down in 70 AD. God still has a plan and a purpose for the people of Israel, and it's to come, but it's not now. So we don't keep these festivals as Old Covenant people, but that doesn't mean these festivals don't teach us about the principles and character of God. The sum and substance is Christ. And these festivals tell us the Lord God is a saving God. Now, he, in, in this passage, it says there's three festivals. And that can be confusing because when you read other books of the Bible, there's other major Jewish holy days. But all of these holy days get tied into these three festivals. Uh, so, for example, uh, Passover goes side by side with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pentecost goes with the Feast of Harvest. And the Day of Atonement and Feast of Booths goes with the Feast of Ingathering. It's confusing, but it's not all that together, altogether that different when we say we're celebrating Christmas. And Christmas has all sorts of things, you know, it'd be a Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day. Remember, you celebrate you know, the, the Magi, but we, we just say, do you celebrate Christmas? These festivals, there's other holy days tied to them. So let's talk a little bit about what we see here. The first festival mentioned is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm in verse 15. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it also included the celebration of Passover. And then there's these seven days to follow where you would honor the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And each of these events recalls God's miraculous 
and hasty deliverance of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. So on the Passover, by the blood of the lamb, some of you guys remember this, they would kill a lamb and they would put the blood over the, uh, the, the doorpost, the thresholds of their home to symbolize that this blood has covered this home. And, on, and then the following day, they were to rush out of Egypt into freedom. And the, the rush and the haste was so fast, they, they didn't even have time to put yeast in the bread. And these were all done as, as faith. And we put faith in the blood, and we have faith that God is delivering us tomorrow, so let's get whatever bread we can get ready, because it is time to go. But any refusal to uh, do the blood and any kind of like sense of, oh, he's probably not delivering us tomorrow. Those would have been marks of unbelief, and there would have been judgment. And three times a year, the Israelites were to remember that event of God saving his people by the blood in haste. Come and remember who you are. Come and remember whose you are. For Christians, the Lord's Supper is now our Passover feast. That's what Jesus did. He inaugurated the Lord's Supper on that meal, and he said, "Ah, this is all about me. It's all about me. How do you remember me? Take this bread. Drink this cup. We remember our salvation through bread and wine to remember Jesus' body and blood as the means of our salvation. The next festival is called the Harvest Festival. Verse 16, it says, Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. This was to celebrate the barley harvest that came in late spring, early summer. Uh, each family would come to Jerusalem to give a portion of their proceeds to the Lord. Those who could, they actually brought an offering at the beginning of the harvest, and then 50 days later, all of Israel was to gather to present offerings of new grain. And the early part of that harvest was called the first fruits. These first fruits, the first part of the harvest, were to be a sign and symbol that God was going to provide the entire harvest in time. It's coming. Now, what I love about that is this points forward to two major New Testament principles of first fruits. We have two particular times in New Testament where it's called first fruits. First, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of all resurrections to come. Jesus rose from the dead, and one day all who trust in him will resurrect as well. So too, God pours the Holy Spirit into the heart of every person who trusts in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of all of the blessings to come. Now, the Holy Spirit is an amazing first fruit. God comes and dwells with his people, but he becomes the seal and the certitude that more is to come. New heavens and new earths are for those who have been touched by God's first fruits. Remember, God saves, and God saves again. Right? Salvation is coming. We are saved, and there is an ultimate salvation to come. And these, that festival celebrated that, and now it's fulfilled in Christ. And the third festival mentioned falls in the seventh month. That's where it's mentioned at the second part of 16. It says, celebrate the festival of ingathering. At the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field. So the end of the year occurs at the seventh month. Remember, seventh is completion. Seventh is the, the celebration that God has been faithful the whole year. And now we gather. 
Um, so this is where the, the harvest of olives and grapes usually has occurred. It ends up being kind of a quiet time in the Israelite agricultural calendar. It might be like November, you know, December, January for an Iowan. It's quieter. Um, but in this seventh month, when things seemed to slow down, two major events would occur. One was called the Day of Atonement, and then it was followed by the Festival of Booths. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the Day of Atonement, uh, I encourage you maybe to even go meditate this week on Leviticus 16, but here's the short version. The Day of Atonement involved one animal being killed and another animal set free. One was a sacrifice to purify the people and the temple, and then the released animal symbolized the freedom of those who didn't face that death, didn't face that judgment. And then... After this event, there would be a seven-day festival where people would dwell in these makeshift tents. And it was to remember, to remember that for 40 years, God's people wandered in the wilderness as, as sojourners, as like perpetual campers. Like some of you, that sounds like vacation. That sounds close to hell to me. Camping for me is like the Super 8, right? Like, oh, can't stay at the Marriott. I guess we'll stay at the Super 8. Right? But, what, but, but, but for God's people to remember who they were and whose they were, for seven days every year, they would remember that their ancestors were preserved by God for 40 years as they wandered through this desert, ultimately coming into the promised land. And you know when that festival ended? On the eighth day, the new day. The new day symbolizing that they had entered the land. I don't know if you guys if you meditate much on when, when does Jesus resurrect? On the eighth day. Right, this is, he come, the, the, the beginning of the new creation was after the Jewish Sabbath, and it's a new day, new people, new land, new kingdom, new church. And that's why the Christians say we celebrate the Lord's Day. The beginning of a new week, the beginning of a new people. Really, this feast of ingathering also just speaks to Christians, just the idea of we are pilgrims. Some of you are familiar with the classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. There is a pilgrimage uh, in this life. We are walking with God. We are citizens of heaven, therefore we are pilgrims here, trying to be faithful until God brings us home. But you can know that God will bring his people home. Even though some days it feels like you're living in a tent. It doesn't feel right. God's going to bring his people home. And so we remember this aspect of God through the Feast of Ingathering. Look at how this section ends. Admittedly, it's kind of, it all makes sense except for that last verse. <laughs> Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of the sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. And then, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Some of you familiar with modern Judaism, they actually don't eat uh, meat with cheese. And it's because that's how they interpret that verse. I don't think that's it. I'll get to it in just a second. So remember, the Sabbaths speak to our Sabbath God. The festivals speak to our saving God. Now, these final instructions speak of how these rituals were to be kept. 
How should these be kept? How should we honor God? When we go to worship Him in these festivals or when we set aside a Sabbath day of the Lord, what should be our attitude? What should be our practices? What should be our hearts? First thing it says is the sacrifices are to be pure. And that was that, that idea, no yeast. We want to have purity and sincerity under, to God when we worship Him. No yeast. Second, they were to be whole. Don't hold back the fat. Only in the modern world is fat not what you eat. In the ancient world, everyone knew, knew that that tastes better. What does fat stand for, guys? Flavor and taste. That's a principle in the Proctor home. <laughs> right? So you don't hold back the fat. It's the best part. Flavor and taste. You, it's, so our worship to God should be pure without yeast, and it needs to be whole. Don't hold back the fat. They were to be sacrificial. That's the idea of your first fruits. This is why um, you don't wait to the end of the month to see if you still have money left to give to the Lord. You know, the idea that the Lord is my first, has first place in my heart, so it has the first check from my paycheck, or it has the first gift of my savings account. And I say that, and those of you who think I'm just trying to get rich, you can give that to any other church in this town, any other nonprofit, but I do think it's significant in our heart. Do we give our first and our best to the Lord? Our worship should be pure, it should be whole, it should be sacrificial. And then there's this verse 19, which no real scholar knows what in the world it means. (laughs) It's at least a warning against idolatry. Uh, It's believed that ancient Canaanites performed rituals of boiling goat kids in its own mother's milk. Some scholars therefore think it's a reference to like honoring life. That is, you don't take what's supposed to give life to the animal in order to take away its life, its own mother's milk. Ultimately then, the festivals are to be pure, whole, sacrificial, and either without any hint of idolatry or with a commitment to honoring life or both. That's what the kind of festivals and rituals we would want in our life to shape us. How we celebrate them, when we celebrate them, and that we celebrate them. Now it is important to remember that Christians today are under no obligation to celebrate any ritual besides a couple that are mentioned in the New Testament. The gathering of the Lord's people, the receiving of baptism, and the taking of the Lord's Supper. Those are specifically mentioned for New Covenant people. From time to time, Christians will choose to remember Old Covenant feasts, and they can be very helpful to remember the kind of covenant God that we have. Sometimes they'll establish new feasts, like Christmas and Easter. But even those are not required to be celebrated. We are, in fact, warned at a couple of times in the New Testament, Galatians 4, Colossians chapter 2, to not make the celebration of any of these feasts a first-order issue. Instead, we make Jesus the first-order issue. His life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We are wise to do this with any of the rhythms and rituals that we set in place each week, each month, or year. Hopefully, we set aside good rhythms of rituals for, for worship as God's people, but we're also going to create them for our own individual lives, like morning and evening prayer, uh, what some people call a quiet time, when you spend time quietly with the Lord in prayer. But whatever ritual or rhythm that's in your life, we wanted to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. When we set apart special times, it's to remember 
who this Jesus is and how he infects every aspect of life. This was the quote of the week for me by a great Old Testament scholar named Walter Kaiser. He says, A Sabbath or festival was like a kiss between lovers. It gathered into a special moment what was always true. Catch that? A Sabbath or festival was like a kiss between lovers. It gathered into a special moment what was always true. Couples don't kiss every moment of every day. I mean, Heidi and Ethan might still be doing that because they haven't been married (laughs) very long yet. Um, God bless you guys. (laughs) Again, couples don't kiss every moment of the day. But when they do kiss, that kiss celebrates a lifelong commitment. Just put lovers aside. Just think about the the kiss or the caress or the hug between a a parent and, and a child. You can't do that all day, but that moment of that embrace or that kiss, it symbolizes what is true always. God is giving us these rhythms of worship. The Lord's Supper, I mean, it's in many ways God's kiss for his people. This is true always. You are blood-bought people. Jesus gave his body for you. This is true always. We remember it especially on the Lord's Day. But it is true always. This is who who you are. This is whose you are. Same thing with baptism. Baptism, we do this once in the life of a Christian. But it's to remember whose you are always, that you have been washed and purified by Jesus, and you are his. Similarly, Christians, we can't be in church every week. In fact, we shouldn't be in church every week. But when we do gather, it celebrates God's lifelong love and commitment to neglect church will shape the rest of our week and the rest of our lives. But remember the principles that were spelled out too. We need to remember that these special festivals, these Sabbaths, are to remember that we are to provide for the vulnerable. This should translate in a lifestyle of caring for the vulnerable, the oppressed, the sojourner, the foreigner, the immigrant, right? This is who God's people should be because they are, that's the kind of God we have. Just As you think about personal application, there could be many. I mean, for some of you, it may be to think about a principle of Sabbath in your week. Is there a day that you have dedicated to resting from your labor, releasing others from their labor to worship the Lord God? Is that in your life? Or are you caught by consumerism and workaholism and Don't trust the Lord to provide for that day. Maybe, maybe what you need to do is you need to rest in the salvation that God has accomplished. To remember that it is his mighty arm that redeems. It is his son who saves. And you've done a lot of things for self-salvation over the years, but today you say, "I, I can't save myself, only Jesus can save me. And you bow before him and say, save me, Lord. And then, you know, maybe you come forward to receive baptism, which is no one baptizes other himself. It's something you receive to symbolize that, that God saved you by his own mighty hand. In a moment, we're going to remember salvation. We're going to remember it through the Lord's Supper. And so maybe that's just something special today. You just remember this is God's kiss to say this is true always. This is true always.
And then I just pray. I'm just praying that we would be a Sabbath people. The people in this community would know there's something strange about those cornerstone people. You know, they're, they're drinking something in their communion juice. Right? And we're talking to people about the God who saves. We're talking about the God who cares for the vulnerable and the weak. We're talking about the God who has made himself known to the personal work of Jesus Christ. What a gift to be God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these rhythms and rituals of worship given to the old covenant people, now fulfilled in Christ and lived out in a new way by the Spirit of those who are part of the new covenant. And I just pray that we would live out the principles of these, mainly because we, we, we know the depth of our hearts. We've been changed by Jesus. And that it is for his glory that we would be shaped by his life, his death, and his resurrection, that we would be a people who extend Sabbath mercy, that we would be a people who make the salvation of God known. Let us never forget. Pray that our worship would be pure and complete, would be sacrificial, would have a concern for life and not mixed with any, any idolatry. To the glory and praise of God, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.